millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. What do you do if the political party you're elected to represent begins to disgust you and eventually turns on you? What if you find yourself alone in Parliament surrounded by colleagues who behave like thugs, bullies and misogynists? Do you just toughen up or call them out? Former MP Julia Banks did both. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. Julia Banks was a successful corporate lawyer with a couple of decades of leadership under her belt. Not one to shy away from an argument or a challenge. She felt the tug of politics around five years ago. She was a resident of the Melbourne seat of Chisholm, and in 2016, she decided it was time to try and toss out the Labor member who'd held that seat for 17 years, Anna Burke, and win the seat for the Liberal Party. And she did. But her enthusiasm for morphing from lawyer to legislator soon turned sour. In fact, worse, Julia found Parliament and her party's power plays simply stank. What she later called out as gender bias, bullying and intimidation has since become a regular headline describing the current Australian government. But back in 2018, when Julia quit the Liberal Party and became an independent, 
she was the first woman to so boldly turn on her own party. The move was described in the media as a blistering farewell amid chaos and political thuggery. What followed was a relentless attack on Julia Banks' sanity, from death threats to numerous attempts to discredit her. But not only did she survive and fight back, she's now dedicated herself to tackling face-on the scourge of sexism inherent in Australian politics. I caught up with Julia just as she was writing the final words in her forthcoming book, Power Play, Breaking Through Bias, Barriers and the Boys Club. Julia, thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining Broad Talk. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Virginia. It's a delight oh, to be Oh, look, here. it's... I'm so pleased that we've finally been able to find each other and, and uh, find a time when we can both sit down because I know you've been incredibly busy with your yeah. book, but we'll come to that a little bit later. I want to kick off by asking you about the March for Justice. Uh, you were a speaker in Melbourne, which was a huge event also, like most of them around the country. Tell me a little bit about why you agreed to speak at that event? Well, like everyone, Virginia, I was seeing everything playing out in the media and all the um, horrible issues that were coming out of Parliament House. And I saw the March for Justice um, movement just building and building. And I can remember saying to a close friend, but even before the March for Justice um, movement sort of started really with that tweet, started with a tweet as we know. Um, I I remember saying to a friend, this is just, I just can't, cannot believe what's happening. We should be marching in the streets. And I, <laughs> I remember saying that and she reminded me of that. But, um, but can I just ask you, sorry, can I just ask you there though, because that's an important point. When yeah. you say you couldn't believe what was happening, what, what was it that you were seeing and feeling was yeah. happening? Well, it just—it was just like the litany of, of of matters that you know, starting with Brittany Higgins, and then the whole you know every every Newsday we would see something coming out of Parliament House, particularly, and and I think I think what we all saw was that well, I would suggest every woman in Australia saw it through their lens and. Um, as opposed to the lens that was trying to be created by the government and and the, their sort of PR management of it, I think that's what sort of um, created that groundswell of mm. support leading to the March for Justice, leading to the amazing work of Janine Henry. But, you know, at, at the same time, when I was first asked to uh, speak at the, at the rally, which was, very late on in terms of the organisers, they sort of rang me on, you know, that week and they said, would you like to speak at the Melbourne Rally? And my initial reaction was no and I, I actually declined the invite and then... Why? I, well, I woke up the next day and I rang uh, the organisers and I said, you know what, I, I will, I absolutely will speak. And um, they So what, said, what was going on? What, what what changed your mind and why the reticence? I actually explained it to the crowd in, in the first words of my speech, you know, because I felt I had to be honest with these 
10,000 people like arriving there and seeing 10, it was the Melbourne rally just to see my hometown just covered in a sea of black, you know, extending mm. out beyond the Treasury Gardens. And and I, I just, I said, I said to the crowd, I said, you know, initially I had declined the invitation to speak here because basically because I just, I, I know what, I know what men in power are capable of if you, you know, raise your head above the parapet. But I thought, you know, there is such collective support. And I changed my mind because I could see this collective support just growing and growing in numbers. And I thought, if I can't, then, you know, of course, of course, I should do this. And so, and so I did. And when I shared that with the crowd, that moment, when they just sort of responded with that, that sort of collective voice it was pretty amazing, I've got to say. Was it, a, was it emotional for you? It was. It was. I think it was an, and I think it was an emotional day for a lot of people. And you know, there were some incredible moments during that day. And a lot of those moments were, for me personally, were people of literally all ages across the spectrum, men and women, mainly women. You know, from grandmothers who are looking after their kids during, um, you know, because it was a work day to some of my former colleagues to, you know, from the corporate space to, you know, people from everywhere to young schoolgirls who had had permission to, you know, come to the rally. It was just an extraordinary day of collective voice. It certainly was. I wrote recently that um, for me, standing on that stage was a game changer. When I looked out at the crowd, it was beyond anything I had expected. Were you, your expectations met or was it, was it bigger than you expected? Oh, it was way beyond my expectations. And also the knowledge that in real time and at the same time, you know, 40 other events were going on around the country. It was it was pretty extraordinary. And it was also at that time that I think it, I think it was breaking news that Christian Porter was taking legal action against the ABC and... Um, the organisers, the MC, um, stood up and thanked and acknowledged all the journalists, um, the, fit, the women journalists who had led this story, who forensically investigated it, and, you know, it was, it was an incredible time. It has been extraordinary, hasn't it, in terms of the media coverage, and, of course, I was here in Canberra outside our Federal Parliament House, and, as you say, when Christian Porter, the news about him, our Attorney-General taking action against our public broadcaster over allegations that have been made against him, that certainly got the crowd going in, in Canberra as well. But it's, for me as a journalist, over 30 years, it is just so exciting exciting to see media coverage now in mainstream media that is serious and that is taking these this issue or these issues seriously when for so long it's been a sideline or it's been the work of just a few of us, to be honest. Um, but now to have it as mainstream media news is, is extraordinary. Tell me, what, what do you think now that we are, gosh, you know, a month or two down the track past that big event – what do you think the march has achieved? Well, I think the march has sort of cemented a momentum that's not going to go away. I don't think it was a a one-off event. That that you know, from my point of view, it was it was so extraordinary. And it's not just my view and I'm sure it's not just your view, the fact that it generated headlines 
across Australia and internationally and that that voice of those women and and I think uh, women and men I think that you know some people have discounted the margins by saying oh, it was only a hundred thousand people you know they're not <laughs> representative of Australia but I think that people who've said that are, are forgetting the fact that um in fact a lot of women and men were marching there or at those rallies in the name of other people who mm. couldn't get there for whatever mm. reason or indeed in terms of women who have been, you know, fatal victims of, of mm. domestic violence or gendered violence. So It's yeah. interesting. I've had a number of women tell me that they didn't go to the march because they were concerned about it being triggering, those who have oh. experienced violence and um, severe sexual abuse. And uh, but they were there in spirit very much, and I've been surprised by the number of women who've said that. Tell me now that we are further down the track, and of course we're we're still talking about it. One of the things that uh, really I think reverberates is the that roar of of anger and frustration. Mm. The chant of the, mm. the the marches around the country was enough is enough. Mm. What do you think is behind that anger, that frustration, that rage, and do you feel it? Yeah, for me, it's it, it's a sort of frustrated anger, and I think I think I think it's because uh, it, it's sort of like that concept of women have um, invariably in matters of, for example, sexual harassment or um, sexual misconduct. There are two elements quite often at play in any workplace for any woman who's experiencing that. And quite often those two elements are fear and silence and fear of speaking out because of how you'll be painted or what will happen. But, you know, that silence element, whether it's through a non-disclosure agreement or through through other means, that has created a lot of silence for women for over many, many years. I think there was definitely an element of safety in numbers and as I described there certainly was for me in terms of going out there and speaking, knowing that there were lots of people there. Um, but I think there was that element of, you know, silent no more and I think that's that's what, you know, underpinned that feeling of frustrated anger. You know, when you mention safety in numbers, I've got to say when I watched you back in 2018 in Parliament House on your feet making your extraordinary speech about quitting the Labor Party, uh, the Liberal Party, uh, the government, and uh, announcing that you would go to the crossbenches and what you said, you looked like the loneliest person in Parliament. Mm. You look like one of the loneliest women in Australia at that time because what you were saying about the government and your own party was shocking. Can can you just take us through what was going on for you right then? Yeah, well, it was, look, it was a a time where a a lot of things were happening. Um, You know, there was obviously the leadership coup against Malcolm Turnbull and, um, I describe it as that those those that week's events were the last straw. It wasn't, and I, you know, I basically called out during that period the entrenched anti-women workplace culture. It was a very entrenched culture, and I felt I was, you know, there was a narrative forming. The media was 
being, you know, they were weaponizing um, the media, certain sections of the media to attack me for making that statement. I mean, when, when, when you, you say know, they were, who are you talking about? The men well, in I, government? Well, my, my opponents were clearly within the party that I had, all I had done was in one sentence in um, that statement, uh, in that first, not before my speech, but in the statement when I said I wasn't going to recontest, in that statement I had said I've experienced, I, I, I described the sort of anti-women workplace culture. Also in in subsequent speeches I described that and I basically had witnessed, observed and experienced bullying and intimidation. So, and by by saying that in that statement, suddenly there was a sort of move to a couple of things to to sort of create my silence, but also to um, in the, in the sense of wanting me to just sort of be quiet um, mm. and, and and creating that narrative that I was any number of things from. You know, Can I just I just want to remind our listener of some of the things that you said? Then I've got the quotes in front of me because the one that stood out for me was when you, you spoke about cultural and gender bias, bullying, and intimidation. Yeah. But the line that really stood out for me that I wrote down and kept was you said, "Often when good women call out or are subjected to bad behaviour, the reprisals, backlash, and commentary portray them as the bad ones, the liar, the troublemaker, the emotionally." unstable or weak or someone that should be silenced i just thought in that comment that 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 sentence you yeah. just summed it up perfectly yeah and that and that basically i had been you know um, depicted in any one of those scenarios and to your point earlier virginia where did i feel alone and what was you know because i certainly looked alone um mm. you know after that speech I've never felt less alone because my inbox was just swamped with emails, phone calls from women across Australia. Um, oh, wow. Um, in terms of their experiences, basically thanking me for calling calling out bad behaviour, which they knew, obviously knew from what we've seen in the press and the occasional front page stories, was was going on anyway, but it was it was quite incredible the support I got. Like if I carve out all the negative stuff, mm. there was a lot of support there as well. And I think um, I didn't want to be. I thought to myself, you know, if I'm to exit this place, I don't want to because I announced I wasn't going to recontest. I don't want to be exiting as the sort of um, person, any one of those descriptions they were painting me at as, you know, as the sort of liberal who didn't quite cope with. Mm, didn't fit in, could, wasn't tough enough. Despite despite your decades in corporate law, you know, they yeah, were saying you weren't that, tough enough. Yeah. And so it was really, it was really a principled decision. It was important to me that it be recorded in Hansard, um, that that's why I was going to serve the rest of my term as an independent. When you did give your final speech, though, and again, I watched that uh, in awe, the men in your party got up and left the chamber. Talk talk about being left on your own, hung out to dry. Um, and even the Prime Minister had said that he was concerned for your well-being or words to that effect, almost indicating he thought you had some kind of mental health problem. Which goes to the point you were making that women are made out to be, you know, yeah, yeah. the liars yeah. and emotionally unstable or weak. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and the Prime Minister had, Scott Morrison had um, his first press conference when he was asked, and this was uh, when I um, announced I wasn't recontesting, which was three months prior to that speech. He was asked, um, you know, how do you feel about Julia Banks not recontesting? And he kept saying, well, kept just using my first name, um, mm. which is an interesting phenomena, um, and I- indicating concern like I was emotionally, yeah, as you say, emotionally not not well at all. Mm. Um, it's the strategy, was, isn't it, really? Mm, yeah. Yeah, to, to go through, I call it the sexist spectrum, you know, that narrative of you're either the liar, the troublemaker, you know, the um, emotionally unstable, the person who's making it up for notoriety it's any one of those things Mm. that women get labeled with if they call out misconduct or bad behavior Mm. I want to just dwell for a moment on this time period in Australian politics because 2018 in particular so you you came into parliament in 2016 but 2018 was a really interesting year because it was the year that we started mainstream media started focusing on the fact that the government had a a so-called woman's problem or a women problem, um, particularly Mm. around representation. The issue was that there just Mm. weren't enough women. In fact, when you stepped down from your party and went to the crossbenches, that meant there were only 12 government or coalition women left in the lower house of 74 people, yeah. um, which is appalling, yeah. absolutely appalling. But we we had a lot of media focus on the lack of women um, in the coalition and the Liberal Party's woman problem, although we – and we were talking about bullying and harassment. Even, even the former Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds, came forward and spoke about bullying and harassment, although she went very, very quiet within a day. Mm-hmm. Did you, in speaking out at that time, you spoke more strongly than any any of the other Liberal Party women had. Do you mm. think that those that those comments landed though? Did, did did you start to sense that that people within your party were paying attention? Because it's it's taken really three years for many of them to mm. acknowledge those words. Well, I my point of view is no, I don't think they have. I mean. I wasn't the only one during the coup week who had called out behaviour. I mean, Linda Reynolds called it out in the Senate twice at that time. Um, Julie Bishop, Kelly O'Dwyer, they all made reference to it. Um, you know, Lucy Kachui, you know, we saw that, that within the Liberal Party there were many women who had complained about behaviour at that time, but uh, the difference between... Um, me and those that are still in Parliament that stayed um, beyond, you know, for the 2019 election is that they went sort of to ground very quickly and mm. said, oh, no, it's being handled internally. It's been handled internally. Um, and, you know, um, to address their women problem, they called a for an internal review and then both parties declared they had a system and a process which was internal and it, it just sort of the, the issue about internal reviews and internal systems, internal reporting systems, as we know, is that they get gagged or forgotten about or... Shelved. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so you made it very clear that you believed a, a, an external 
uh, independent review, but also a mechanism, a whistleblowing yes. reporting mechanism Absolutely. was important. And it's quite interesting because what you were calling for then, had that been in place, the yeah. the, the stories such as Brittany Higgins' allegation of, of rape uh, in a minister's office and other allegations by young staffers uh, would have been dealt yeah. with correctly and, um, and, and certainly processed and they weren't. Um, so did, did anyone pay attention? <laughs> Within your party, well, no, really not. They, um, it was all, you know. I, I was calling for that, and not, not so much for MPs or for myself, um, which is what they wanted to make it about. It was more for the five thousand odd staff that work in Parliament House, where they don't have, where there is a much more significant power disparity between their roles and those of the MPs, which is, you know, and it's dominated by men in um, senior positions in the staffing ranks across both parties, obviously not in the parliamentary ranks in the in the Labor Party because they've done a very good job with quote, their quota system. But certainly in the Liberal Party, that power disparity is it's, it's just screaming out for a, a system that sits outside the parliament that gives women particularly women, that confidence that their complaint is going to be managed appropriately, professionally and independent of any of those, you know, intuitive constraints that that exist. Julia, we're just going to uh, take a short break and when we come back I want to talk to you um, about the personal impact all of this has had on you and your life. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Julia... The impact your words have had in Parliament and the resonating impact of what you called for has been very, very powerful. But I want to know what it's been like for you um, personally. I know I spoke to you at one stage very, very early in the piece, well before you'd started writing a book, and um, mm. you know, I got the sense that, I, I, well... I remember the conversation really well because I just felt so sad for you and, and so and also really angry, to be honest, uh, angry at what had happened to you and that I knew. And I've, I've been 
around politics for, you know, over 25, nearly 30 years. And it was like, God, yeah. here we go again. You know, a really great woman has been smashed. Mm. Um, mm. What was it like for you personally? Well, it was extraordinary in the sense that it was, it sort of happened in three stages. So the first thing was I announced I wasn't going to recontest. Um, then the treatment I received was, as we've just described, it was so bad and I thought I'm, I'm going to see out the rest of my term as an independent. At that time I had no intention of running as an independent and, in fact, going back to the when I said I wasn't going to recontest, I had no intention of, um, you know, going to the crossbench. I was going to sit it out but I thought the treatment was so bad that I was going to make that principal decision. And then over the summer, that summer, um, that's when I brainstormed and talked about it with, you know, family and friends. A lot of my, you know, closest friends and family didn't want me to go back mm. into that maelstrom of politics, but that was counted by so many people saying in the local community particularly saying we need, you know, women like you. Well, you did it though. You ran. You ran against uh, so Greg Hunt. So, and- yeah, so I came to, to that decision and ran again, but it was almost the treatment that I received at that time was so intense. Um, it was far worse, much more intensified than what I received as a candidate in the previous election from the opposition. Mm. Um, so they really hounded you, didn't they? Yeah, and it wasn't the opposition. It was the people within the party that I'd left. And that was really acute, dreadful treatment, which I fully expected because uh, when I was hesitating as to whether to to run or not, um, a friend, one of my closest friends said, well, what's stopping you? And I said, well, fear. And she said, but, you know, there's there's nothing on you, like, you know, fear for what they'll do or how they'll paint me. And she said, well, there's nothing on you. And I said, yeah, but they'll make it up, which they did. Um, they did. And that was, that was that's hard for anyone to, to deal with. And, you know, you're told not to read the comments in um, social media, but. They kind of jump out at you, don't they? They, they jump out at you, but also I had low-level, well, they were classified as low-level death threats, so I was told uh, we have to monitor the social media as well. So, And every little one chip, 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 chips away at you. What were the death threats about? Why? Well, exactly. Like who would who would convey a death threat to someone because they've left a party and decided <laughs> to run as an independent in what is a free country. You know, and it's really interesting. I think one one journalist made a comparison between the treatment I received compared to what was going on at the same time with Craig Kelly threatening to mm-hmm. go to the crossbench as a, as a male, right, and indeed Corey Bernardi who left the, not mm-hmm. only came back from America, left the Liberal Party and created his own Conservative Party. And yet when he left, he was lauded as this, you know. Good on him sort of thing. Yeah, good on him and he can do his own thing and, you know, he he has strong views and convictions and fine. Isn't it interesting? It would be a fascinating study to look at how many uh, many politics receive death threats. Just about every woman I've interviewed uh, who has been in federal parliament 
um, at, at a high level has received def- death threats. And when I think of Sarah Hansen Young, for example, some of hers involved not only threats to her but to her young daughter that were horrific and disgusting. Um, uh, Julie Gillard, of course, received death threats um just about every woman has, which leads me to the obvious question, and not just because of death threats, but, and can I just say I've had them myself, but um, is politics too hard for women now? Is, is, is that what we've come to? Well, I think, I think what, this is where the conundrum is in my mind, um, Virginia, because I vehemently believe, my fervent, fervent hope is that we have equal representation of men and women in our federal parliament. We we absolutely need that for our country, for our society, for our economy. That will result in better policy outcomes. You've got, you know, 50-50 of the population who've got different lived experiences to bring that to the parliament and to bring it to the making of our laws. But at the same time, we've got this situation of a very toxic workplace culture. So my strong view is that we've got to stop talking about it and having summits and doing internal reviews. We've actually, it's actually not that hard. And corporate Australia have proven that if you introduce mechanisms and structures to deal with this sort of thing, they're not the panacea, but they will change the dialogue and they will change the culture. And for example, like an independent reporting system, you know, we should have mandatory quotas in our parliament. Labor have already achieved that, but mm-hmm. um, if we wait for the Liberal Party to introduce quotas, I think we'll be waiting for a long, long time. Well, there are some senior women in the Liberal Party right now who have basically said quotas over my dead body in years past. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, um, you know, when Scott Morrison said he's open to quotas, I think. Everyone in the Liberal Party saw that for what it was, which was really a distraction to create discussion about quotas rather than, you know, to distract from the the really big and serious issues that were going on at the time Um, because it is it's pretty entrenched um, Mm. that, you know, I mean, in their their report last year, which they did apparently on women, they make no bones about it and say quotas are unpalatable mm-hmm. to most liberals. So, so you know. It fascinates my- me to, to, to hear women, um, politicians who are anti-quotas, talk about they don't want women to become token women. I know. Well, I mean, <laughs> when I think, gosh, I mean, heavens above, you know, we have. <laughs> yeah. The, co- the nationals who are ministers are a quota. Um, yeah, they are. And and the nationals have a quota in par- in um, cabinet, of course. Yeah. Um, Julia, what needs to be done, do you think? And I know you've given a lot of thinking to this, particularly whilst you've been writing your book. What what needs to be done to shift attitudes? Because we all know the the mechanisms that you speak of and the organisational structures, yes, we can do that. That can be eventually forced into place. But how do we change what people feel in their hearts, their, their attitudes about what is right and wrong for women? Well, I think I think it all comes down to like in any workplace culture, because as you mentioned, I've worked in you know um, corporate Australia for twenty plus years, and because I worked in very matrix driven structures, I've seen you know and worked alongside countless CEOs and VPs, and the leader determines the culture, and they determine that culture by accountability 
and by their by their leadership by making the tough calls, making the hard decisions, making the good decisions, and their um, own actions. And, yeah, and showing empathy. I really believe in my heart of hearts that the only true circuit breaker to our our federal parliament will be at the next election, regardless of which major party gets in. I think the circuit breaker will be a hung parliament with a number of independent, hopefully more women than men, but independent progressive people in the centre where they have the balance of power. Because I think if that happens, then we can actually bring it. I mean, that was the vision for 2019, but it didn't come into fruition. But I think if that were to happen, then you could use the balance of power to just stop faffing about, introduce a, you know, independent workplace reporting system. You would fast adapt what big corporates have done in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, you you could introduce mandatory quotas. Uh, you could do all those structural things. It's interesting, isn't it, too? I know many people would say, you know, hung parliament and a number of independents cre- you know, can create chaos because mm. you don't have a, a single uh, government with a strong mandate. But then if we look at Finland, for example, which uh, the, yeah. the Prime Minister there, of course, is female, she's in her 30s, just had her first child, um, she runs a coalition of five political parties, all of them led by women. And it's very, very um, collaborative and it works. Yeah. It works. And successful government. Mm. A lot of the Nordic countries are structured on that. And, you know, my experience as an independent, um, particularly with the other three women in this, you know, centre, but, you know, socially progressive, economically conservative, um, we achieved a lot at that that time and Mm. our vision was to continue to achieve in relation to humanitarian issues um, for our refugees in relation to climate change action and obviously in relation to gender equality. And I, I really believe that's the avenue. And I think there is there is a lot of um, appetite for that, growing mm. and building, and I think, you know, March for Justice probably underpinned that a lot. Julia, before we go, there's two quick, well, Nothing's quick, really, when we're having a great discussion, but two quick things I do want to run past you. Um, one is uh, about gender equality itself. The theme of this series of Broad Talk is gender equality, are we there yet? Now, it almost seems like a, um, a redundant question, but I'm going to ask you, uh, you'd be well aware of Australia's rankings by the World Economic Forum, the Global, Ge- Global Gender Gap Index report that came out just recently for 2021. Yet again, Australia has dropped down the global rankings, which I find just gobsmackingly yeah. um, infuriating mm-hmm. for such a rich nation as we are. But they, that's not the only ranking. In all the major global rankings, Australia is declining. And our own data within Australia, we only need to hear um, that the outgoing director of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, Libby Lyons, has been speaking quite strongly lately about how she feels that an apathy has set in in terms of, of, of increasing the the um, number of women in leadership, for example. What do you think, uh, given both your corporate experience and your political experience, what do you think? Where, where are we at when it comes to gender equality? Oh, I, I think the... Um Depressing it as it is, I think the ranking is not surprising to me. I think we've, I agree with Libby Lyons that it's it's sort of um, we've sort of morphed into a political, certainly on the political side, a kind of paralysis where we're just sort of stuck there. 
And that's why I believe, you know, that circuit breaker has to happen for us to to really pick up and change because the, the these changes that we need, they're an urgent imperative. They're costing our country um, terribly, not just financially, not just from an economics point of view, but from a social and political perspective. Mm, indeed. Julia, just lastly, and I'll finish on this one, I promise, but um, coming back to your speech in Parliament when you quit the government, the Labor, uh, the, I keep saying the Labor Party, you quit the Liberal <laughs> Party, you said it, well, a number of things that really struck a chord with me, but one of them um, towards the end I, th- I thought was particularly um, beautiful really, when you said to those who say women in politics just need to toughen up, and that's a tough game, yeah. you say, mm. and you went on to say, I say the hallmark of Australian women and I know thousands of them. Yeah. I've met thousands of them. The hallmark of Australian women is an exceptional resilience, an authenticity, an independent spirit. Now, given everything you've been through and, quite frankly, all the, the crap that's been thrown at you um, and the nastiness mm. and the strategies to, to smash you, how have you managed to be so resilient? How have you – I know that times, you know, you've probably wanted to pull the curtain, shut the door and put your head down mm-hmm. and not lift it for a while, but but how have yeah. you managed to work through and come up not only with a, a book that's due out soon but but come up um, fighting? I think, Virginia, it's it's a good question and I think it's because, because of what I refer to there um, in terms of I think – I really believe if anyone, you know, I've worked all around the world and I really believe if anyone can um, pick a fake or someone who's not authentic, it's an Australian person, particularly Australian women, they can spot it a mile off. And I think that quality and that characteristic and that resilience is what charged up the March for Justice movement, is what people are, are tired of. And I think for me personally, what gave me the strength to go on was that, and, you know, it, it's, 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 I'm quite unlike a lot of politicians, particularly career politicians or politicians, you know, people who've been in the game for a long time in the sense that I worked in other worlds for 25 years in the corporate and legal sector. And basically those sectors have modernised and, a part of modern Australia where gender equality is, you know, the, the value of gender equality is seen and just you know, the ethics of those organisations for which I worked basically are driven from, okay, what is the right thing to do? And uh, I think that's what gave me the strength because I thought this is the right thing to do. This is the only thing I can do here. And that was 100% validated, as I said, for all the negativity, the threats, the abuse and everything. It was just validated with this groundswell of support from women around the country. And, you know, obviously that coupled with the love of my family and friends and their support and also previous work colleagues like that time when I spoke to you that you raised, you know, when I started getting back into that world and my previous world and catching up with, you know, work colleagues I hadn't seen or going to conferences or, um, you know, meeting with um, friends who are on, the, on their boards and that sort of thing, 
that's when I thought, yeah, I, I have done the right thing. You know, there's mm. there's nothing wrong with what I've done and I think, you know, that's the best way to move forward. Well, Julia Banks, I think you should feel very, very proud of what Thank you've you. done. It is, um, I don't like to overuse this word, but it, it's awesome. <laughs> you, you know, your achievement and, and you're fighting through and then you know, continuing to argue the case and and now to write your book, which is due out in early July of 2021, which is really exciting. I can't wait to read it. I I think it's awesome what you've done and you've just set such a a fabulous example to others about um, standing up for what you really believe. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Virginia. Been great to be with you, and it's been lovely Always. having you on Broad Talk. And um, hope we can again once that book hits the uh, the bookshelves. So good luck with it. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much, Virginia. Julia's book will be out in early July, and what was initially to be an account of her own political journey has expanded into a timely reflection on gender relations in Australia right now. Well, I hope you enjoyed that big chat. I loved talking with Julia. The hardest part is ending the conversation. There's always so much more to discuss. And on that note, you can join the ongoing Broad Talk conversation anytime. Jump onto our Facebook page, Broad Talk, and just click to join the group, the Broad Talk Roundtable. Martin and I will happily throw open the virtual door, pull up a seat, and share your thoughts. I pop in most days. And you can find us on Twitter at TalkBroad. And I'm frequently to be found at Virginia underscore House. That's H-A-U-S-S. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And my thanks to Martin Pierce, the WBPP, world's best podcast producer. (laughs) Join us again next week. Until then, happy chatting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.